Welcome to Red, White, and Confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans. Here in the state of Virginia, I like to tell my students that every year is election year. Each fall, my political science 1010 class, which is the intro to government class, spends time registering students to vote and spreading awareness about the upcoming election and our government in general. Faculty members from other states are always shocked. They'll be like, wait, it's not an even number year. Why are you working on voter registration? And I'm like, well, it's every year is election year. But if you're not near a college campus normally, um, you may have still seen individuals out in your community working at tables, registering people to vote, spreading awareness about elections, interviewing candidates, and doing all those kinds of activities. One organization that's pretty well known for assisting with those efforts is the League of Women Voters. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with Deb Wake, who is the president of the Virginia chapter of the League of Women Voters. So Deb, thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you, Heather. It's my pleasure to be with you. So I haven't given much of an introduction of you yet, and I want to give you space to talk about yourself and also to talk about the League of Women Voters. A lot of folks may have heard of that group, but they are, they're not really sure like what that group does or why they might want to join. So could you give uh, our listeners a little bit of information about kind of what what is the league known for? And furthermore, what drew you to being active in the league? The league formed over 100 years ago out of the right for women to vote. And at that time, then they needed to educate all of those new voters. And so that has been the uh, major focus of our organization for all these years is registering voters and making sure that they're educated voters. And uh, I am a fairly recent member of the league. When I lived in Henrico County, which is a suburb of Richmond, I would create voter guides for my family. And uh, the kids would always go to the polling uh, location with us. And I tried to make sure that the guides were nonpartisan. Um, I had to go to different resources to, to pull the candidate information. I think that uh, now we have much, many more resources. The league has Vote 411, which is a great nonpartisan voter guide. Um, but because of doing those voter guides when my kids were little, I understood that the league was a nonpartisan and um, organization that, that educated voters. And so when I moved to Northern Virginia seven years ago, didn't know who my candidates were. It was a contentious presidential election. And so I joined the league because of their nonpartisan stance and to learn more about the candidates in my area. I also take my kids to vote uh, when I go vote just so they can see democracy in action. And um, I too am always looking up information that would be nonpartisan about all of these candidates, what they stand for and all of that. And I think that work is fantastic. Now, over the last few years, how long have you been uh, in the position that you hold now? So right now you're the president of the chapter in Virginia. So how many years have you been doing that? Um, just to talk a little bit briefly about the way that league is structured, we have local leagues. We have 14 local leagues in the state. Then we have the state league, and then we have the national league. And when you join at the local league, you're a member of all three levels. And I have been the president. Uh, it's a two-year term that we're elected to, and I'm nearing the end of my second two-year term. 
That's awesome. Um, now, the work that's happened in Virginia, because I heard you speak a couple of weeks ago. I attended the Washington County uh, League of Women Voters spring kind of meeting and, and luncheon, and you were the guest speaker. And you said something that made me fall out of my chair and I had to tweet about it. It was about the movement of the state of Virginia in terms of just thinking about voting and the ability to get a hold of a ballot and vote. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about like, where do we stand now compared to where we stood before? How difficult is it now compared to all the other states to vote? I'm very pleased proud of our our work to improve voter access in Virginia. So four years ago, we were the 49th most difficult state in which to vote. And now we are the 11th easiest state and perhaps even higher as other states work to restrict and, and put barriers in front of voters. So very proud of that, particularly during a pandemic that we were able to make these uh, access to the ballot improved for voters. So what are some of those things that we were able to do in the last four years that have that have helped with that and helped move us up in our standing? It's a big list. So we ungerrymandered our maps with the redistricting process, and that includes ungerrymandering prisoners so that they are counted at their last home district. And the reason that's important is um, it means more people have a say over who represents them. So even though we do not have felony enfranchisement, uh, people in prison cannot vote, um, but their families can, and they can influence um, how they're represented there. Uh, we passed the Virginia VRA, the Voting Rights Act, because we see that those protections being chipped away at the federal level. And so it's very important to have those protections at the state level. Um, we have 45 of no excuse absentee voting, and it wasn't that long ago that you needed a, a short, an excuse from a short list in order to vote absentee. Now we have 45 days and it's one of the longest periods, uh, to, available to voters. We have ballot curing and that's perhaps the most important because prior to having that, you found out within 45 days after an election, why your vote didn't count. When you cast an absentee ballot, the registrars have until the Friday following the election to uh, contact people that there were issues with their ballot envelope. And this isn't the ballot itself. They have to decide if they're going to count the ballot inside based on what and the information provided on the envelope that the ballot is contained in. And so the ballot curing process allows them to, to correct any information that's missing, um, and that allows people to have their votes counted. In addition, we have drop boxes that allow you to safely cast a ballot um, without having to come in contact with um, anyone, especially if you have a health concern or you're just busy and you didn't get it in the mail in time, you're able to make sure that it gets counted uh, on election day. Um, we've removed the witness requirement. This doesn't go in effect until July 1st, but this is something that we brought a lawsuit against during the pandemic because we didn't think that voters needed to choose between their health 
or uh, being able to cast a ballot. And so beginning July 1st, you will no longer need a witness in order to cast an absentee ballot. Um, at the Division of Motor Vehicles, when you go uh, in there to get your license, mostly, you know, a lot of young people enter the, the system that way. Um, it used to be that you would have to opt in. Now you have to opt out. And so everyone automatically has their registration updated when they go to the DMV. Um, this also helps make sure that uh, the lists, the voter lists are up to date with the uh, current address of the voter. Um, there's been an expansion of acceptable IDs, including student IDs, and that's an important uh, way to allow uh, younger voters to vote. Um, and in addition, high schools are mandated to provide time and materials to register high school voters. And then the last item that's, that was a biggie that just went into effect last year is same-day voter registration. And uh, it's particularly important to uh, communities that move around a lot like college students. And uh, particularly up in Northern Virginia, people move a lot. And, uh, you know, there, because it's a densely populated area, there are a lot of voting places. And so you easily move in and out of precincts. And so uh, those places where there are a lot of closely uh, located precincts or polling places, then it's a great opportunity to correct that on election day. Yeah, my students always ask me, I get these questions like, um, well, I live here now, but I, you know, I'm not from here. So where exactly should I register to vote? So I'll, I'll share with you what I tell them, which is, um, well, what I would do is look at your local election right now that's coming up. Are there people on your ballot? that you really, really, really want to vote for. If there are, you should absolutely get registered where you're, you know, you're originally from, but you live here. And if the ballot is the same and if it, you know, and then register here and cast your vote here, because for something like, for instance, um, let's say the presidency, that vote is the same whether you make it in Wise County near the school or if you make it, you know, here in Washington County. And so, it just depends on where you're at and, and who's on that ballot that year. Do you think that's good advice to give students? What, what, do you, what would you tell college students? Yeah, I think that's great advice. And, you know, college students are, are in the locality where if it's a uh, not a commuter college, you know, one that they, they actually live where they're in college, they're there nine months out of the year. And so it makes sense to, to vote where you live because those are the policies that are going to affect you most of the year. Yeah, and we end up having a lot of the local candidates come onto campus uh, and talk with students about what they're running for and why they're running. And so I tell students too that like, well, you just met these candidates. And so if you think you want to vote for one of these local candidates, you absolutely need to get registered here <laughs> and not where, but again, you may have a family member that's running back home. And if you do, go register there. Um, you mentioned gerrymandering. So I remember the push when it came to kind of ungerrymandering districts here uh, right before this census. Could you tell the listeners a little bit about like, how did that process change? So before, and, and this involved a constitutional amendment, and, and to speak briefly about a constitutional amendment in Virginia, because it, it's 
an uh, arduous process intentionally because you don't want the, the constitution to be easy to change. You want it to be things that are going to stick. And so in Virginia, for a constitutional amendment to pass, it has to pass the legislation. There has to be a, an election. And then the same legislation has to pass the new uh, General Assembly before it will go to the ballot uh, before voters. And then the voters have to ratify it so that before it goes into effect. So for um, the redistricting, it's, it's been a long process. The league has actually been engaged in redistricting since the 50s. Uh, because they realized that it was a way that uh, the people drawing the maps could carve out some of the, the power from the voters. And so in the past, it was the legislators who were self-interested in how those maps are drawn. And there would be backroom deals. It was all done behind closed doors. And in the end, you had crazy maps that carved around where people lived. You know, it was a common protection uh, process as well. And so with this process, it was messy. There was a commission that was comprised of half legislators and half citizens. Half of the legislators were uh, of the House, half were the Senate, half of, of each of those were one party, were, were Republican, the other half were Democrat. And then the uh, citizens were nominated by the partisan leadership of, of the legislature. And so the chairs were, were two citizens that uh, co-led co from each party, represented, uh, appointed by each party, co-led the commission. Um, the problem is they did a lot that led to, de to deadlock. Um, had separate councils, had separate map drawers. Uh, the communications weren't, didn't go out as quickly as it should. So that was all unfortunate. And what ended up happening was the backstop is that it goes to the Supreme Court of Virginia to hire uh, special masters. And uh, the constitution requires them to hire two special masters that work together. And so that's what we got. And we think that the maps are very fair and I think that we see that playing out in the primaries this year. There are a lot of first-time candidates. There are a lot of older legislators who uh, for, have reside or retired for various reasons, but one is they didn't want to put in the effort to learn a new district and, and how they were going to represent those constituents. So for voters, we think it's a very good thing. So they have a better opportunity of picking who represents them instead of the legislators picking their constituents through the maps that they draw. Do you end up seeing, and I, I think this is the case, um, in the end here in Virginia, you mentioned there are more people who are kind of like new to the process um, who are running. Do you also see more competitiveness in Virginia now uh, under these new maps than the old maps? We do. I mean, there are some parts of the state that are going to lean one toward one party or the other, but Virginia, there, there's an argument about whether Virginia's blue, whether Virginia's red, whether Virginia's purple. And uh, we do think, think that these maps give voters more choices. So you see more primaries uh, where they don't just have to take whatever candidate they get, they get, they get a say in that. 
And I think that there's not enough understanding of the primary system in Virginia. So in Virginia, we do not register by a party. And so voters can go in and they can vote in any primary that's open to the public. Sometimes the parties have a closed primary or uh, other mechanism for choosing a candidate that you need to either be a party member or uh, sign a pledge that you will only vote for the party candidate and that sort of thing. But the ones that are uh, run by the, the state Voters should, should participate in those because often the person that wins the primary in June will be the, the uh, eventual winner in November. And so it's important to participate in that process in, in the primaries. Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy that this is an open primary state um, because in those closed primaries, you have to register with a party. And while the parties like that, the citizens, I think, kind of lose out in the closed primary states. Because if you're really, truly an independent, you you don't really have an option for participating in the primaries. But here in Virginia, you can. And so yeah. that's that's really great. Now, um, thinking about the main issues that the league cares about, obviously, we've been talking about voting and voter registration. Um, are there additional issues you would add to that that are kind of like at the forefront of the league's agenda right now? Some people would argue that the league should only focus on voting, but I have to tell you that when the league first was new, some of the uh, first laws that they changed were labor laws to protect uh, basically children and, and other uh, young women that, that were working in the factories. And so the league has always been about what is best for the community and for the underrepresented population. And one way that we do advocacy is through our studies. Uh, we have a convention coming up uh, in ju early June and our uh, delegates will decide whether or not they want to support a study. And then there's a two year process where the study takes place. Uh, all of the local leagues participate in either working on the research for the study or in discussing the results. And through that process, come to a consensus to form a position that we then use for advocacy. And at our last convention, we approved four studies, which is sort of historic uh, that, that we had so many. It, it's a real endeavor to uh, logistically to, to, to do that many. And I'm so very pleased at the hard work and the quality of these studies. But our, our four studies that we hope will be approved at the convention uh, next week is uh, education equity, child care, environmental justice, and money in politics. And uh, if those are passed, then we will have new avenues uh, to advocate for uh, policies and laws. You mentioned equity in education and um that is actually an issue that is near to my heart. Um, being here in Southwest Virginia, I've told many people that, um, you know, when it comes to our schools, our schools in Washington County, um, comparing Washington County to other districts, we're, we're doing well here in Southwest Virginia. But if you take our schools and you stack them up next to schools in Northern Virginia, it is not the same. And so in with the league and the study, are you looking specifically at the state of Virginia then or just generally like broadly, we're looking at all equity across kind of everywhere? 
So the league um, back in 2019 as a whole started something called the Transformation Roadmap. And what they discovered is that they were very homogenous organization, mostly women, mostly white, mostly wealthy, mostly retired, um, and felt that that wasn't, um, it was hard to be representative without having a, a more diverse membership. And so it has been a focus since 2019 to include more uh, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion in our membership, but also in our policies. And so uh, the study was done statewide. So it is um, at the state level to, across the state to try to um, bring in more, more equity. That's great. And um, you also mentioned childcare. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Or are you looking at the availability of childcare for individuals? How, what, what exactly do you mean by childcare? Sure. It's interesting that childcare is part of infrastructure because it impacts business, it impacts families, and it impacts people across the economic um, range, but it, the affordability really impacts uh, low earning families. And during the pandemic, there was a real crisis in childcare because a lot of people who were able to work from home pulled their children out of childcare, um, but it impacted women the hardest because women were still the caregivers, still working from home, still doing all of the home duties. And um, so we really saw an impact there. And what the study looked at was the necessity of childcare, the affordability, uh, but also the quality of the of childcare. Well, childcare in, you know, where I work, which is in Wise, um, we just recently at the college are, we're working on putting a childcare facility on like near our campus for the region, for that section of Southwest Virginia, because it is so needed. Faculty um, don't really have the availability, but beyond that, like just people in general who live there don't really have a lot of options. If, if you're from the area, then you might have a family member who's able to keep your child while you work. But if you're not from the area, you, you really don't. And so having a place um, that is affordable, um, because even just making it an option, in my opinion, isn't enough, right? It's like, we'll make it an option that we have these things available, but we also need to make it affordable for people who live there. So the, our college is focusing on that right now, which I think is great. I know that when we were a young family, I really couldn't wait for our kids to start getting into kindergarten because it was such a financial burden on our family. Yeah, same with us. Um, and that's that's one of the reasons that many people end up not working is because once they have children and they look at the price of childcare and they do the math per month, it's like, well, but then I'm working for this amount of money versus just keeping my child at home. And so I I really think that, especially in rural areas where there isn't a lot of availability, that is so needed so that, you know, not only is the childcare needed, but childcare that's affordable is needed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I, I ended up staying home after the kids were born and it wasn't issue, you know, people go, oh, well, wasn't that nice? You had that luxury. And it, and it really wasn't, we, there were a lot of things we did without because we had to make financial choices. Now, um, this is actually my last question for you. Um, I, you know, I, I teach about American politics. I study um, elections and so registration, competitive elections, all that. But we're going to shift gears just a little bit because the League of Women Voters as an interest group also faces the challenges that all interest groups face. Um, things like membership and um, just getting people active in the membership. I want to talk with you a little bit about, you know, why, why do you believe people should absolutely start joining their local leagues? Um, as we mentioned before, the league is nonpartisan. Um, I think that, so the other thing people should know about the league is that we're all volunteers. Uh, as far as I know, I know of one paid staff member for a local league in Northern Virginia. Otherwise, all the local leagues, all, the state league, were all volunteers. And the reason that we do this is because the work is important. And I think that a lot of people join and there's a little bit of imposter syndrome because you see the great work and you go, wow, you know, this is incredible. Um, but we didn't all start out uh, issue experts. My, my first role in the league was working transportation and trying to get dedicated funding for Metro. And um, I attended meet. I mean, we attend a lot of meetings and, and you, you educate yourself and, and through that process, you become the experts in the issue. Um, that's the other beauty about doing these studies is that through the research and the discussions, you become the issue experts. So um, I would say, uh, don't think that you don't know enough that, that you know, to, to join the league. I think it's a great place to learn. It's a great place to get engaged. And I think people uh, join the league because they want to do something and they want to make a difference. And I mentioned all of the laws that were changed during the last four years. That's because our members made a difference. Um, the other thing I didn't get to mention earlier was we also passed the ERA in Virginia. We, we were the 38th state and, and very proud of that. Um, still waiting for that to come to fruition at the national level. Uh, but it's very important to have those protections in our laws. Well, I think that the league has done amazing work. And so I'm here in Washington County where I live. I work in Wise County. If anyone out there is interested in joining the league, please reach out. There's going to be a link on uh, the post that goes out with this show on Facebook and also some contact information for your local leagues. I am really impressed by everything the league has done over the last, even the last 10 years here in the state of Virginia. So even beyond the last four, just all of it, I think is super impressive. And I'm excited to see the future of the organization. Deb, thank you for coming on the show. Heather, it's been my pleasure, and I hope that I'll get another opportunity, even though my, my time is, is winding down as president. Um, I didn't mention that we do have a study that we hope is going to be approved at this convention, and that is a universal right to vote. And so I would love to, an opportunity to come back and talk to you about that at a later date. I would love to have you back as well. And, you know, it's only we're going to creep up to Election Day. So we're going to have all, you know, there's so many opportunities 
to come back and talk about those things. So thank you. Um, everyone who's listening, thanks for tuning in. If you missed any piece of this, you can catch up anytime on Spotify, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts, we're there. So just look for Red, White, and Confused. Also, it comes on WEHC 90.7 on Thursdays at 6 and Sundays at 1. It's also broadcast locally in Wise, Pound, Clintwood, all over. So thanks for listening, and I hope everybody has a great week.